When you pick up your Bible to read it and you open up to a Pauline epistle, one of Paul's letters to one of the many churches that he writes to, making up a lot of our New Testament, that's why we have an epistle reading every Sunday. When you open up to one of those letters, to one of those epistles, it can be easy to gloss over the first ten or so verses because they all kind of sound the same. This is Paul. I'm writing to you in the church of Ephesus, Corinth, the church in Rome, whatever the church is. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God whenever I think about you because of your partnership in the gospel, so on and so forth. These are called the greetings and the thanksgivings of Paul, and he starts most of his letters in this kind of formal way to these churches. It can be easy to gloss over those parts of the Bible, to think, yeah, this is just the formal part of the letter. But remember what Paul says in his second letter to Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, including those greetings, including those thanksgivings, is profitable. Profitable for teaching, profitable for rebuke, whenever those are, whenever there are those who are morally in error. Profitable for those who need correction of doctrine. Profitable for training in righteousness. And as he says in his letter to the Romans, profitable also for comfort. The scriptures were given for our comfort in the midst of every trial. And so when we come to this part of 1 Corinthians today, which seems just like a lot of the other greetings and thanksgivings of Paul, for some reason our fathers in the faith thought it was good to include it even in our lectionary that we would read it at least once a year on Sunday mornings, and the Lord himself thought it profitable to include in the Holy Scriptures. And so we should carefully read it. And carefully think about what Paul is getting at here in this greeting and thanksgiving. And you can get a lot out of the greeting and greetings and thanksgiving if you know what's coming in the rest of the book. So a lot of times I think Paul will include certain phrases, certain little words here and there in these greetings and thanksgivings that are going to set up his hearers, his readers for what's coming. And that can be profitable not just to the people in the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago, but profitable also for us. For the presuppositions that Paul wants to set forth for the church in Corinth should also be presuppositions for us. And so what comes ahead in the book of 1 Corinthians? What comes ahead in this book that Paul is giving this greeting and thanksgiving in? 1 Corinthians is actually one of my favorite books of the New Testament. And I'll tell you why. Because over the last two plus years of my ministry here, it has been the book that I think I have probably referenced and quoted the most in everyday ministry. 1 Corinthians is a practical ministry book. I look for advice from 1 Corinthians probably even more often than the books where Paul specifically writes to pastors about the ministry, like Timothy or Titus. 
1 Corinthians is filled with all of these practical things because Paul was actually the Corinthians pastor longer than he was the pastor of any other of his missionary stations. And so he knows them very well. He knows their foibles. He knows their issues. He knows their strengths. He knows their blessings. He knows them well. And so in 1 Corinthians, you get all of these very practical issues. In 1 Corinthians 5, you get the issue of the guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law needs to be excommunicated. So we have things about sexual ethics in the church. We have things about keeping a church roster clean and what to do when someone needs to be removed from the rolls. We have issues of lawsuits among believers. What happens when two believers have a practical problem with one another and want to sue one another? Maybe they're not to that point yet. But how do we do reconciliation in the church? We have problems of 1 Corinthians 7, singleness and marriage, and Paul's advice for those who are single, Paul's advice for married couples as it concerns the marriage bed, advice for those who are married to an unbeliever, even though they're a believer, all sorts of marriage advice. We have advice for how the church should treat widows and how widows should act in the church. We have a whole section about the stronger and weaker brother when one Christian understands doctrines better than a weaker Christian and how to act in grace and patience with each other in that way. In 1 Corinthians, you have the most extended New Testament discussion about close communion and reverence concerning the Lord's Supper. You have all these things about the roles of men and women in worship. And ultimately, Paul bookends these things with the kind of preaching that should take place in the Christian church. Chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified for the salvation of men. Chapter 15, if we do not preach the resurrection, we are most among men to be pitied. You have the preaching of the church. You have all the practical issues in between. It is a fantastic book to learn from as a Christian church, even a modern one, not just 2,000 years ago. And so the Church of Corinth has a lot of these practical issues. So when... Might have to switch back to the other microphone here. So when Paul greets these people, what are the presuppositions that he sets them up with? And I think there's two big ones because he repeats himself about these multiple times in these nine verses. First, Christ sanctifies his church, the people of God at the church in Corinth. The people of God at the church at Beautiful Savior are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And second, the people of God are confirmed in Christ Jesus. They are confirmed until the day when Jesus comes back. The people of God at the church in Corinth, the people of God at Beautiful Savior are confirmed. First we'll do sanctification. Christ sanctifies us in his church. As Lutherans, it might surprise you that Paul begins not with justification, but with sanctification. We're very big as Lutherans to say that justification comes first. 
our salvation in Christ alone, our salvation won for us by the blood of Christ, not by any works of our own, but that God has declared us righteous by the blood of Christ on account of our faith in him, our justification comes first. And then we do the good works that God prepared for us beforehand. And then we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Then we grow in faith and good works throughout our lives. We're justified, then we're sanctified. And that is theologically true. And Paul will talk about justification later in chapter 1. We preach Christ crucified, which is the power of God to bring men unto salvation, similar to what he says in Romans 1. However, he wants to start the Corinthians off with this first, that you are sanctified in Christ. Verse 2. Church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And he repeats himself here. Called to be saints together. That's the same word. Saints sanctified. It's the same word. Those who are made holy, verb, and those who are the Holy ones, now, sanctified in saints, made holy, holy ones. Same word. He doubles down on sanctification. It's so important to him that he repeats it twice. They are sanctified and they are the saints. They are made holy and they are holy. And what is this holiness? What is this sanctification that Paul speaks of that he wants to ground the church of Corinth and that he wants to ground you in today? You know the Sunday school answer. To be made holy is to be, anyone know? Set apart. To be set apart. And there are a couple ways you can think about being set apart as holy. That you can think about being saints or sanctified. First, In the negative sense, set apart from evil. That's why I have on our sign right now, reject evil. Set apart from evil. Set apart from the devil. Set apart from the ways of the world. Set apart from sinful temptations. And when you think about what those practical problems that the church of Corinth is going through that Paul addresses all throughout the book that we talked about, when you think about that list, you can think about why Paul says this. Because the way of life for the Christian, the way of dealing with all of these practical problems, is different for the church in Corinth. It's different for the Christian church today. Your sexual ethic is different from the sexual ethic of the world. The world says it's okay. To partake in sexual deviancy. In fact, maybe it's even healthy to partake in things like porn and other sexually deviant behaviors. And there are subversive evil people trying to even teach these things to our children in schools now. That it's a healthy practice to explore your sexuality in ways that are Contrary to God's word. But that's not how the church is. The church is different. The church is set apart from subversive and deviant things. And we are not litigious like the world is. Remember what Paul says 
about believers not taking each other to court. We are not hungry for revenge like the world is. You can think about how often courts are going on, how often judges are hearing cases, how often lawyers are needed in such a sinful world. But Christians don't need that. Christians are set apart. We have repentance. We have forgiveness. We have Christian counsel. You can think about how the world treats the elderly. Think about what Paul says about widows. The world so often treats their elderly with shame, throwing them into a nursing home, never visiting them, never caring for them, not taking them into their own homes, not caring for their physical needs. The world now, just look at Europe or Canada, is even supporting euthanasia. Just get these people out of here. They have no value. But the Christian church is different. The Christian church values the wisdom of the elderly. The Christian church values the widow and the orphan. We are different. You can think about all of these things. We are so set apart. Set apart ultimately by the way that Paul bookends the letter. We preach Christ crucified and resurrected. The world thinks it's folly. The world thinks it's silly. The world thinks it's not possible in this material and natural world for someone to be raised from the dead. But we preach the salvation of men. We preach that which if we don't have, we are most among men to be pitied. But we have it. And it is true. Christ is risen from the dead. Christ has been crucified. And you are saved. And you are justified. We preach a message only the church can preach. So set apart from the world. Set apart from evil. But also set apart in this way, in a positive way, to be like God. Holiness is what makes God God. Holy, 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 shouted the cherubim in the presence of Isaiah at the temple, in the presence of God himself. Holy, holy, holy. The holy of holies is where God dwells. Holiness is what makes God God because he is set apart. He is the creator and we are the creation. Holiness is the attribute of God. It defines everything about who God is. He is holy. And so when he calls us to be holy, he is calling us to be like him. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And as a baptized Christian, you are called to be in that fellowship of holiness with him. You are baptized into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means God becomes your Father. Jesus, the Son, becomes your brother, your co-heir of eternal life. The Holy Spirit is put into your heart to dwell with you. You are, as Paul says here in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. You have a kinship, a fellowship with Jesus Christ. You are made to be with God, like God. The sun is the vine and you are the branches. Your life comes from his blood flowing in you as you receive his very body and blood in the church. 
You are set apart. Yes, set apart from evil, but also set apart to be with, positively with, and in the fellowship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is who you are in Christ. Sanctification, being holy. Yes, it's a matter of growth and faith and growth in good works, but it is also, as you can see in these two things, set apart from evil and set apart to be with God, a matter of identity. This is who you are. This is why Paul sets this up in this way for the church in Corinth as they're going to deal with all these practical problems. Remember who you are in Christ. You are the holy ones. You are the saints of God. You are sanctified. It's who you are. And so when you deal with all these problems, you deal with them Christ-like. You deal with them, not as the world would, but as Christ would. And furthermore, as these holy ones, you are not called to this growth in holiness, this sanctification. You are not called to do that by yourself alone. And that brings us to the second thing that Paul is so concerned about here, that he repeats twice, that... God would confirm you in his church. Just like he doubles down on sanctification, he doubles down on this. And unfortunately, the ESV misses this in its translation. I don't know why. Verse 6, first, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you through the speech and knowledge, it's preaching, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, verse 8, who will sustain you that word sustain same word as confirm who will confirm you to the end guiltless in the day of our lord jesus christ verse six confirm verse eight sustain it's the same word paul wants you to know that christ confirms you in his church now as good lutherans you know about confirmation as a rite in the church whereby a teenager or an adult comes forward and they say, they say, yes, this faith that I have learned from the word, this faith that I have learned from the word through Luther's small catechism, I make this faith my own. I am confirming the faith that I received in my baptism. I am confirming, ratifying, establishing that this faith is mine publicly. That's what we think about it when we think about confirmation as a right in the church, and that's a good, good thing to do. That's not exactly what Paul is talking about here, but the word, you can see what it means there. Confirming has to do with ratifying. It has to do with establishing. It has to do with firming something up, making it sure, a sure foundation. It's like when the Memphis-Arkansas bridge is going to fall down. Because there's a big crack that no one knew about. And they have to go in and they have to put up new I-beams or whatever they put up to sure it up. To make it to where cars and trucks can drive over and no one is worried about it all collapsing. This is what Christ does for you, for your faith, in his church. He establishes you. And how does he do so? 
Look at verse 5 and verse 6. That you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. This is the preaching of the word, the testimony of Christ, the testimony of your justification and sanctification. Christ crucified, chapter 1, Christ resurrected, chapter 15. This testimony which we preach, this testimony that Jesus Christ has saved you, forgiven your sins, justified you, baptized you, sanctified you in the faith, this testimony keeps you strong. As you learn from his words, those words, remember, which are profitable for teaching you, profitable for rebuking you, profitable for correcting you, profitable for training you in righteousness, profitable for comforting you in the midst of all trials and hardships. Those words sure your faith up. They make your faith strong. They establish you. They confirm you. They confirm you in the faith through his preaching. And what is the goal of that? Not just now, not just so that you would be established now, but that you would be confirmed, sustained, established, shored up until the end. Until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God establishes you now. He sanctifies you now. And he keeps that keeps you strong until the day when he returns, until the day when you behold him face to face. He shores up your faith. He will confirm you. It is sure you are elect in him. No one can pluck you from his hand. It is certain. It is established in him. And so as you consider, dear saints, all of the practical problems that may come up in your life. Whether that be dealing with sexual ethics and the world, whether that be dealing with fellow believers who you have conflict with and need reconciliation with, whether that be dealing with issues in your marriage or your marriage bed, whether that be dealing with the elderly and the orphans among us, whether that be dealing with the stronger or the weaker brother who you have differences of doctrine with and you're trying to work it through, whether that be dealing with how we reverently worship in the church, whether that be dealing with really any practical, everyday life problem, sickness, health, wars and rumors of war, hardships and sufferings, you know all the things I'm talking about. Remember what Paul says about you here. You are a saint. You are sanctified. You are set apart from all evil, from the world, from the devil, and from sin. You are called to live a Christ-like life, Because you are truly in fellowship, truly baptized, truly living in him. And remember not only that, not only your identity in him, but also remember that he helps you and he does it for you. He 
confirms you. He establishes you. He strengthens your faith. He can make you strong, not only now for every problem now, but also for all the problems in the past and also for all the problems to come until he should come again. For through the testimony of Jesus Christ, through Christ crucified and resurrected, we are not among men to be pitied, but we have all that is needful for this life and for eternal life. He will keep us firm and sustain us till the end. May he surely do it. To him be all the honor and glory. Amen.